Today's sermon will be from uh, Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 4, moving ahead in the book of Acts. The title of today's message is Opposite Responses to Preaching. Let's please stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'll read from verse 11 of chapter 3 up to verse 12 of chapter 4. And you'll see there uh, verses 1 through 4 is where we'll be focusing today. Please listen carefully because this is God's holy and infallible word. Now as the lame man who was healed held on to Peter and John, all the people ran together to them in the porch which is called Solomon's, greatly amazed. So when Peter saw it, he responded to the people, Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses. And His name, through faith in His name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through Him has given Him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet, now brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers, But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets, since the world began. For Moses truly said to the fathers, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brethren. Him you shall hear in all things, whatever he says to you. And it shall be that every soul who will not hear that prophet shall be utterly destroyed from among the people. Yes, and all the prophets from Samuel and those who follow as many as have spoken have also foretold these days. You are sons of the prophets and of the covenant which God made with our fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your seed all the families of the earth shall be blessed. To you first, God having raised up his servant Jesus, sent him to bless you in turning away every one of you from your iniquities. Now, as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, And the Sadducees came upon them, being greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. And it came to pass on the next day that their rulers, elders, and scribes as well as Annas, the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest, were gathered together at Jerusalem. And when they had set them in the midst, they asked, 
By what power or by what name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders of Israel, if we this day are judged for a good deed done to a helpless man, by what means he has been made well, let it be known to you all and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man stands here before you whole. This is the stone which was rejected by you builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. Nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And thus ends the reading of God's word. Amen, amen. Please be seated. About this text, Matthew Henry says, we have here the interests of the kingdom of heaven successfully carried on and the powers of darkness appearing against them to put a stop to them. Let Christ's servants be ever so resolute. Satan's agents will be spiteful. And therefore, let Satan's agents be ever so spiteful. Christ's servants ought to be resolute. So, do you ever find yourself uh, dealing with not being resolute? With changing your mind in the face of the pressures of this world? Do you ever find yourself being tempted to give way because of threats to selfish desires that you may have. Have you ever experienced this in your life? This text today will help uh, for those who have ears to hear. Are there any theological topics that you're really just unwilling to even listen to anyone say anything different than what you believe, even in the face of really solid biblical evidence? It's an important question before us today. When the Word of God comes to you, what is the response that you perceive within your soul as you read the Scriptures uh, in your personal life, in your family? Uh, when you are hearing God's Word, are you typically finding sins in your own life and repenting and growing closer to God? Or when you read God's Word, do you find yourself annoyed and disturbed by what you're hearing? When you hear God's Word, do you find yourself desiring to draw near to Him and to His people to love and to serve God? Or typically, as you are exposed to God's Word, perhaps even from the mouth of a friend, who may be challenging perhaps even a decision you've made, for example. Are you likely to become annoyed or to be grateful? These are questions that fit into today's text and will guide us uh, as we're preparing ourselves for application at the end of today's sermon. Because we can all have opposite responses to preaching, uh, even after we come to Christ. We can have wrong responses to God's Word. And of course, for anyone here who, like these Sadducees, may be dead in their sins and trespasses, we don't want anyone to leave this place continuing to have that 
wrong response to God's word. So we'll first look at the setting in verse 1. We'll look at the who and the why and the what of those who were greatly disturbed, those who were very annoyed with the preaching of God's word. And then we'll look at those who believed. We'll learn about them as much as we can, why they believed, and what happened. What was the, if you will, the fruit of their belief. We'll look at the fruit of unbelief from the Sadducees and the Jewish leaders. And we'll look at the fruit of belief. Um, And then, of course, some questions to apply these truths to our own hearts and our own minds and our own lives. So first of all, the text starts out and says, Now as they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. So Peter has just finished his second sermon at the temple in Jerusalem. We spent the prior two Sundays looking at that sermon together. And as I've said before, this is likely in the spring of A.D. 30, shortly after the Feast of Pentecost has come to a close. We're at that feast, as we've seen already, God has poured out His Holy Spirit upon His church from His throne in a way like has never happened in history before. Bringing forth uh, the communication of the gospel of the kingdom of God in great boldness and clarity to the people present. Peter's sermon, his second sermon, has occurred as a response to the excitement about God healing this lame man. He'd been lame from birth. And after he was healed, he stood up, he was leaping with joy, and he walked into the temple with Peter and John, remember, holding on to them. Peter has proclaimed Jesus as the prophesied Messiah. So everyone comes rushing together to find out what all the fuss and excitement is about this man who's been healed. And Peter preaches into that moment. And in that, he has proclaimed that Jesus as their prophesied Messiah, calling him the Holy One and just, calling him the Prince of Life, which means author or originator of life, and witnesses to Jesus Christ as crucified, resurrected from the dead, and ascended and reigning from heaven during this sermon. Once again, during this sermon, Peter has indicted the men of Israel with denying and killing their own Messiah, and he has called them to repent and to be converted and have their sins blotted out so that times of refreshing may come to them from before the Father's face and so that the times of the restoration of all things may come forth in and through Israel to all the families of the earth. So after completing this sermon, Peter remains with John in the temple speaking to the people. What's going to happen? Are the people going to repent? Are they going to laugh and walk away? What's going to happen? Well, we can tell by this text that the Jewish rulers had a plan in place, ready to go if needed. And it was needed because the Holy Spirit of God brought repentance that day. This post-sermon scene shows that faith has entered the hearers. The people are believing in Jesus as their Messiah. And they are repenting of their sins. And they are turning to Jesus Christ. And they want to know how to follow Him. And we can only speculate on the exact content of these conversations that were taking place. But given the excitement before the sermon and the added new believers that we know about after the sermon, they were likely discussing our Lord 
and rejoicing in his person, in his life, and in his death, and in his resurrection, and in his current reign, and that they were a part of this great thing that God had done. And they were discussing a new life devoted to following him. They wanted to know how to get on board with their Messiah. And this post-sermon excitement and apparent conversions likely served as the motivation for the Jewish religious leaders to attack. They could put up with one major episode like we saw in Acts 2, but they will not tolerate the second. It's a reasonable guess that when they saw what happened this first time, they weren't prepared for it. But they made a plan for if it was going to happen again. And they implement this plan. So how are these the wrong response, the people who have the wrong response. The text says, being greatly disturbed. i put the Greek word there for you. It means to be troubled, to be displeased about something, to be offended, to be pained about something, to be worked up about something. Now, this is not necessarily a sinful attitude of the heart. We see in Acts 16, it doesn't appear as though Paul was in sin. Uh, Now it happened as we went to prayer that a certain slave girl possessed with the spirit of divination met us who brought her master's much profit by fortune telling. This girl followed Paul and us and cried out saying, these men are the servants of the most high God who proclaim to us the way of salvation. And this she did for many days. But Paul, greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out that very hour. So the same motivation, godly motivation, strong motivation that Paul had, that feeling that he had, not motivation, the feeling that he had, the strength of his motivation is the same kind of strength of motivation that we're seeing in these who are now responding this way to the gospel. The same way that Paul was annoyed by this girl, fortune teller, crying out constantly for days. That's compared to how these Jewish rulers feel in their motivation to make these people stop. So who are these Jewish religious leaders? The text says it was the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. We'll see later that the group has expanded when it comes time for the ruling. Uh, when, they, when they bring Peter and John before them, we'll see that later in this chapter. But right now, the ones who initiate this action of arresting them is the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. So the Jewish leaders now make their move, and their public action displays the full force of Jewish leadership. Priests, captain of the temple, and the Sadducees. They intend to bring the full force and fear of the Jewish system of pressure to change behavior before the eyes of all the people. Just like that. One commentator says, Peter's declarations of Jesus and God's plan finally trigger a reaction from the officials of Judaism at the temple. As the speech is in progress, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees who run the temple show up. Literally, they set upon the apostles. And the remark suggests a confrontation as they seek to assert their leadership. Another notes that Luke often uses this verb for sudden appearances. So they weren't 
standing there in a group making themselves known throughout this entire preaching. They were off to the side. They were waiting to see. It appears as though they were waiting to see how the people would respond. Were they going to need to take this step? Because there's always things where you can miscalculate. And these people who do these political calculations, they don't ever want to kind of take this kind of strong move of leverage unless they feel like they really need to. It can backfire. What is the first list, the first type of person listed? The priests. This is one who offers sacrifices and in general is busied with sacred rites. The Greek word itself can refer to uh, all kinds of priests, those who are pagan and those who are of Judaism. Uh, But in this context, it's those of Aaron's lineage who oversaw the required sacrifices and activities of the Jewish temple. Commentary says the priests are the officials who are responsible for the temple, particularly for the sacrifices, for other rituals at the traditional festivals, and matters such as the temple tax. They are mentioned here for the first time in Acts. And then in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, Luke reports that many priests had come to faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Who's mentioned next? other than priests, the captain of the temple. Think of this person as the head of security of the temple, okay? Commentary says the reference to the captain is one of two references in Acts. As usually the Greek term refers to magistrates or officials in a city. But this captain was in charge of the temple police. He was a member of the high priestly family and the number two man at the temple an elite position among the Levites who made up the temple guard. He officiated over the daily whole offering and was captain of the temple police, whose role at the temple was to keep the peace and not allow any messianic expectations that Rome would dislike. So there was this security force that was overseen by the Jewish leadership, and they kept that place running in an orderly fashion and did not allow anything to threaten the peace, to threaten the current situation that they had established. What about the Sadducees? That's the next group that is mentioned. And we'll hear about them some more throughout the book of Acts. And you've heard the Sadducees already talked about throughout the course of studying the book of Luke and reading in your Bibles. Well, there were different groups Sadducees were a sect, S-E-C-T. They were one of those groups in Israel at that time. Who were the other two? Well, the Pharisees, and we hear a lot about them. Okay? The Sadducees and the Pharisees are the best known. But the third group not directly referenced in the New Testament, New Testament are the Essenes. And that makes sense. The Essenes would remove themselves. They didn't really participate in political um, Uh, activities, whether in the state or the church. But the Sadducees, what you want to know about them is that they were a very wealthy and powerful group. They ran the show in terms of the actual power within Judaism at that time, with some meaningful resistance from the Pharisees within ruling councils. And we'll see this rivalry between the Sadducees and the Pharisees later on in Acts. It was this running competition. They had significant differences in theology. uh, And at that time, the Sadducees had the power. They had the money. They had the position. They had the connections with the Romans. And 
in, in other resources, I've been convinced that they were very corrupt and likely were pulling the strings with, of Roman power throughout much of the first century through their astonishing wealth that they had stored up in the temple. One commentary says, the Sadducees were one of the key sects of Judaism. They claimed that their roots went back to Zadok, high priest under Solomon, and even further back to Zadok, elder son of Aaron. Their name is related to the Hebrew term for righteousness. From this aristocratic group of mostly lay nobility came the high priest. They also were very materialistic in their worldview, cooperative with Rome to maintain their status, and less devoted to detailed questions about the law and piety than the Pharisees. Such political concerns are certainly important to them here. They denied the resurrection, believing that the soul died with the body and emphasized the Torah within the Old Testament. They rejected the oral law and the traditions that other sects held. The Sadducees appeared occasionally in Acts. Five of the 14 New Testament references to them are in the book of Acts. They react in part because in their view, the apostles' teaching could be politically, socially, and religiously destabilizing to their relatively good relationship with Rome. So, this is who we're talking about. Some of the background of the Sadducees is important. You can see some of the unspoken or unwritten, if you will, likely motives that were behind the Sadducees. But we're told specifically that they came against them. They were greatly disturbed that they taught the people and preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. This is what was present, what is presented to us in the text as to why they were greatly disturbed. So they were greatly disturbed because of the teaching and the preaching of Peter and John. Okay? Now the reference to resurrection from the dead does bring in the power and the influence of the Sadducees in this decision making. The specific objection is that they taught the people and preached. And the teaching and the preaching included the claim that Jesus Christ had been resurrected from the dead. The Sadducees vehemently denied the resurrection from the dead. This was one of their major theological beliefs. Commentary says, Peter proclaims the resurrection of the dead. This annoys the Sadducees who deny a future resurrection of the body. Moreover, Peter argues more specifically that Jesus' resurrection from the dead was an event which took place recently. So this is a, a very significant theological point that the Sadducees reject. And in today's world, the name of this belief is called annihilationism. Okay? People who claim that there is no eternal punishment for those who are outside of Christ. They just cease to exist. So the Sadducees held to this false, unbiblical teaching, and they did so even uh, in um, opposition to their own Scripture. Their own Scripture teaches the resurrection from the dead. When I say their own Scripture, I mean the Old Testament that they referred to at that time. And it's hard to imagine that they really cared that much about theology. Uh, but if a resurrection theology did win the day, they could lose power in the council. Because uh, as you will see later, there's no reference to the resurrection when they correct uh, Peter and John. 
uh, and that council did include Pharisees. Um, so it, it's, my, it's my belief, and we can't prove it directly from Scripture right here today, but looking at the history of the Sadducees, that, that was what was mostly motivating them was power, wealth, and the stability of the system that they had established. And it's, it's woven in here, uh, and we look at how they ran the show from behind the scenes. But the Jewish religious leaders also objected to the simple fact that Peter and John were teaching the people in the temple. So setting aside what was being taught, they didn't want them there teaching in the temple. Commentary says the followers of Jesus are teaching the people in Solomon's portico complex without authorization, which annoys the priests who are responsible for the affairs of the temple. Okay. So this is who they were. This is why they were annoyed, why they were opposing what they were hearing. What did they do? They laid hands on them. That was the fruit of their position, their beliefs. They laid hands on them. Now, we heard it already in verse 1-1. As they spoke to the people, the priests, the captain of the temple, and the Sadducees came upon them. Now, the word here has the meaning of approached them, but it's fuller than that. The verb translated as approach implies here hostile intent. The use of the verb to describe the interruption of Peter and John speaking to the crowds underscores the public nature of the intervention of the Jewish officials, the contrast with the, between the people who listened to Peter and John as they described the nature of salvation and the messianic days which have arrived, and the Jewish authorities who stood from afar and are only now approaching with hostile intentions, and three, the parallel to Jesus teaching the people in the temple, Jesus being similarly interrupted. So now looking at verse 3. This is what they did. After they came upon them, they laid hands on them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. So laid hands on them. Peter and John are formally arrested by the Jewish leaders who, have, who do have the authority to take them, seize them, and hold them. Commentary says the Jewish leaders arrest Peter and John. The Greek phrase means to lay hands on someone. And it refers here to seizing them and arresting them. So they take them from there, and what happens next is they put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. Peter and John are placed in prison until the next morning when they will be examined and judged. And I'll read some of the text from next week now. They'll be examined and judged by their rulers, elders, and scribes, as well as Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, and Alexander, and as many as were of the family of the high priest who were gathered together at Jerusalem. The Jewish leaders ruling the next day is another fruit of their annoyance. It's not in today's text, but I wanted to bring that in so you can see it flows from their opposition to God and His people. Their annoyance they're being greatly disturbed at the word of God. What do they do? They called them and commanded them not to speak at all, nor to teach in the name of Jesus. That's the wording that the council could agree upon. If you've ever been in a council before, you know that sometimes that wording goes through lots of changings before it finally comes to its conclusion. And this is what they could agree upon. So the Jewish leaders reveal their hearts of unbelief by being greatly disturbed 
being very much annoyed with Peter and John, especially because they taught in the temple without authorization, and most especially because they preached in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. This offended the Sadducees' theology and threatened their stable and profitable and powerful relationship with Rome. So they used their power to try and put a stop to the message about Jesus. They commanded that the gospel message cease in direct disobedience to their Messiah's commandment to spread the gospel of the kingdom to the entire world. One question that comes to mind <clears throat> is the connection. Do you see the connection between annihilationism and materialism? Because if when you die, it's all over and there's nothing afterward, you better get it all right now while you're here. And so that motivation towards materialism that props up the Pharisees and those who follow them would be greatly threatened and theologically undermined by a belief in resurrection and eternal life. All right, what's the other response? The good response. The response that we all want to have to God's Word. They believed. They believed what they heard. The fuller definition of this Greek word, in one sense, it has multiple senses, but I think this sense fits today, is to trust in Jesus or God as able to aid either in obtaining or in doing something. Simply put, saving faith. So that's what they did. They had saving faith. That was their response. Now who are these people? Well, really all we know about them is that there are many. However, many of those who heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. That's really all we know about them, is that there were many of them. See, not everyone who heard the word believed, as we've seen already with the unbelieving, annoyed Jewish leaders. They were there. They heard the word. But many did believe. And that's what prompted the actions that we've talked about already from those who did not believe. But let's also recall what did they believe. Let's recall Peter's sermon about Jesus. I want to read these words aloud from Peter's sermon. Listen to what they believed about Jesus. Note the things about Christ. Men of Israel, why do you marvel at this? Or why look so intently at us as though by our own power or godliness we had made this man walk? The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus, whom you delivered up and denied in the presence of Pilate when he was determined to let him go. But you denied the Holy One and the just and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and killed the Prince of Life, whom God raised from the dead, of which we are witnesses and his name, through faith in his name, has made this man strong, whom you see and know. Yes, the faith which comes through him has given him this perfect soundness in the presence of you all. Yet now, brethren, I know that you did it in ignorance, as did also your rulers. But those things which God foretold by the mouth of all his prophets that the Christ would suffer, he has thus fulfilled. Repent, therefore, and be converted that your sins may be blotted out, so that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, 
whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. So, many who heard these things about Jesus believed them to be true. They believed that God, the one true God, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of the patriarchs, they believed the one true God had glorified Jesus Christ by healing the lame man. They believed that faith in Jesus had brought this healing to him. They believed that Jesus had brought the power to heal the man. They believed that they helped kill this same Jesus. They believed this same Jesus was their Messiah, and they came to believe that they had chosen a murderer over their Messiah who had healed them, this man right before their eyes. They believe that Jesus is the author of life. They have a whole new way of seeing him now. They believe he's the Holy One, not the one who deserved to be crucified. They believe he is just, not Pontius Pilate, not their rulers. And they believe Jesus was crucified and he had to suffer like the Bible said he had to suffer for their sins, to deliver them from their sins, and that he was resurrected from the dead to vindicate him and to show him to be who he is. And that after that, that he was received up into heaven and what they're observing is the times of refreshing and the bringing in of the restoration of all things. You see, they believe that Jesus is their Savior who died upon the cross for their sins and they believe that Jesus is their resurrected and reigning Lord who now is reigning over all things and who is conquering His enemies and they're even coming to understand that the restoration of all things points back not just to when David and Solomon ruled, but points back to the garden, the restoration of all things. They're beginning to see the magnitude of who their Messiah really is. This is what they believe. Do you believe this? Is this what you believe about your Messiah? Now, I know you weren't there, but I hope you can say if you had been there, and you'd not been a believer, you would have done the same thing they did. You would have asked for a murderer as well in your flesh to be given instead of Jesus. You would have denied him. You would have mocked him. You would have spit on him. You would have pulled his beard out. You would have beat him. You would have put the crown of thorns on him. You would have mocked him as well. I hope you can see that. So repent, all of us, again today that our, all of our sins may be forgiven. Now, why did they believe? This is implied in the text. <clears throat> Many who heard the word. Why did they believe? Well, not just because they heard their, the word with the physical sense of hearing. They had inner ears to hear the word. Jesus said in Luke chapter 8, verse 8, and when I preached on this, I made the point that this is kind of the essence behind every parable. When he told his parables, Jesus, of course, knew that there would be some who had ears to hear what the parables meant. And so he said, when he had said these things, he cried, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. So I'm looking around. You can do the same thing. Praise be to God, everybody here has two ears. Sometimes when I'm at the office, I'll, I'll, I'll ask how many ears did you bring with you today? I love that one because I get a little chuckle from the kids. Thankfully, I'm looking around and seeing not three ears, not one ear, but two ears on every head. These are not the ears. 
that are being discussed in this situation. Now, how is it that we get spiritual ears that work? How do we get ears to hear? Well, it's the same way we get physical ears. God, in his kindness, gives them to you. God, in his kindness, gives them to you. This is what Ephesians 2 teaches us. And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath just as the others. So, biblical teaching about who we are as human beings apart from Christ. We are spiritually dead. That's what it says. You he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. So has anyone here ever even thought about talking to a corpse? Speaking to a dead body? You might think about it. I mean, there is precedent in Scripture, so I wouldn't say it would be all wrong to do that. But in general, we don't think about speaking to dead bodies. Why is that? Because they can't hear. They can't do anything. They're dead. But when God speaks to someone who's spiritually dead, God's words are not like our words. God's word brings life when he speaks it into the soul that is born again. This is what's being described in Ephesians chapter 2. Is God speaking life, giving ears to hear. Verse 4. But God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses. Paul doesn't want us to miss this. Twice now. And he's, he's making it clear. You're dead when this happens to you. You're not doing anything. You're not initiating this. Dead people just rot. Dead spirits just rot. Dead spirits get worse. You can't educate someone into eternal life. Paul's making the point to the church at Ephesus about how they came to know God. Even when we were dead in trespasses, going back to verse 4 again, but God who is rich in mercy, because of His great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come He might show the exceeding riches of His grace in His kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith and that not of yourselves. So here Paul goes on and makes it makes an explicit, descriptive statement about the source of our faith. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Where does your faith come from? Where did the faith originate for these men whom we're told about, and probably their families, whose souls, these men who were added, their number added to the church, where did their faith come from, those who believed? Did they gin it up from inside? 
Or did God give it to them? Paul tells us, God gave them faith on that day. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God. And this is what we're tempted to do, y'all. This is what you and me and our flesh, this is what we're tempted to do. Going on with Paul. Not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's where the Sadducees and these priests and probably the captain of the temple guard, that's where they're probably stuck at that time. Believing in their works to bring them close to God. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. When He speaks into the life of someone who's not born again, He makes a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. We have ears to hear. We have faith to believe what His Word says. And then He takes us forward into a life to walk into these good works that He has prepared beforehand for us to walk into. And that's, if you think about it, that's what these people want to know. They want to know from Peter and John, what are the good works we need to go walk into now? What do we go do? This is the question that always comes forth from the lips of those who've been born again from above. From the lips of those who are walking in the Spirit. Show me the good works that you would have me walk into, Lord. It is by grace that we are saved. We believe because God gives us faith. There's nothing different about those who believed than those who did not believe other than God's electing choice. There was no moral distinction, no social distinction, no financial distinction, no clothing distinction. You could go on and on. It was simply because of God's foreordaining choice. Which is never, never arbitrary, but it is of His mind. And His mind alone. So what happens? What happens when these men believe? When they do what Peter said, when they repent and they are converted, turning away from their sin and turning to following Christ, and their sins are blotted out, what's the first thing that we see about them? They identified with the church. Brothers and sisters, please let that sink in. They identified with the church. It says, the number of the, of the, and the number of the men came to be about 5,000. There's 3,000 souls, we're told, that believed and were baptized the first time Peter preached. This time we're just told about the men who are added to the church. So those who repented, those who turned from their sins and believed in Christ, they came forward to the apostles and they were identified with the church. You see, you can't, it's really hard to count a lot of people who don't want to be counted. Right? They wanted to be counted amongst those who believe in Christ. Right? They wanted to be counted. And for this count to be accurate and sure, you've got to have names. You've got to have names on a list. You get to whatever number and you go, oh, did we count this guy already? I don't know. Go back to the list and see if his name's on the list already. The only way to get an accurate count is to make a list of people's names. Now, to know you got it accurate, you've got to have a list of people's names. And as we saw in chapter 2, this adding to the church would have also included water baptism for these men and their families. Just because it's not mentioned doesn't mean it didn't happen. Okay? 
Now, did it happen right then? I don't know. But to be added to the church, to be put on this list, they got baptized. Now, not only do these men take on the blessings of the church, see this, going back to chapter 2, but also their families are brought into this blessing. And note, in the context of the persecution that's taking place, note that these men also take on the risks and the persecutions. Going back to chapter 2, 38 and 39. Then Peter said to them, Repent and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is to you and to your children and to all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call. So praise be to God. You can see the church growing. You can see the Lord Jesus Christ continuing to do His work. And now we see the opposition develop. Every great story has to have a great villain. And the devil is surely a great villain. So some questions now uh, to try to bring the scriptures to our own lives today. Ask yourself, how do you respond to the preaching of God's word? Brought it up at the beginning. I'll ask it again now. Uh, do you get annoyed or disturbed inside? And I don't mean by the personality of the preacher or the, 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 the sound of the voice of the person talking to you. Uh, you know, personality issues and things of that nature. Does the Word of God itself annoy you and disturb you? Do you find yourself being tempted or actually hating and opposing God and His people? To beware of this. What do you think the devil's goal, your sin's goal, is for you in your life? Turn away from God, to hate God, and to hate His people. Right? And we see that on display here. When you read God's Word, are you regularly convicted of your sin? That would be a really important question. When you read God's Word, are you regularly convicted of your own sin and regularly repenting before the Lord because you're not like Christ? And in this, do you see yourself growing in loving and serving God and His people. Next. Are you regularly asking the Lord to grant you the opportunity to share the gospel of the kingdom with those, don't stop the prayer there, with those who are hungry to know, with those who have ears to hear? So this is really two prayers. Lord, plow up the hearts of the people with whom I will come into contact. Plow up the hearts. Give them ears to hear. And may you bless me with the opportunity to share the gospel with those who have ears to hear. That's a great combination. Do you regularly pray this and ask God to bless you with this opportunity? Next. What false theological views might you hold to that are keeping you from hearing God's word? You can tell the Sadducees were completely unwilling to deal with evidence. Do we have something like that? Do I have something like that? Do you have something like that in your life? Another way of asking is, what is your response when you hear a theological point that doesn't match with what you believe? How do you respond to that? 
just reject it? Or are you open for Scripture? We must always be open to Scripture. We must always be open to Scripture. So thankful for the Westminster Confession of Faith, larger and shorter catechism, the standards of our church, because many of the questions, the key questions of the age have been put to rest. But that doesn't mean that we still don't go through them again from time to time as needed in the Word. What theological views might you be unwilling to reconsider even in the face of strong biblical evidence? And I think this just gets to humble um, a humble approach to truth, just knowing our own weaknesses, our own human likelihood to err and get things wrong. Uh, God's word is never wrong, but sometimes we don't understand what God's word is saying. So may we be humble as we are challenged. Next, what selfish desires may be keeping you from following Christ more fully or following Christ at all? We see in the Sadducees probably wealth, power, uh, life stability. They had the ruling councils uh, in their hand. They had a great uh, arrangement with Rome. Uh, What selfish desires may be keeping you from following Christ more fully? And these will be spots where persecution will be more effective against you. Whether it's a threat to your reputation or a threat to your income a threat to relationships, a threat to your freedom, a threat to your life. Ponder these things. Do you see that those who persecute God's people will use legitimate authority to do so? Okay? So just because this authority was put to use to persecute the early church doesn't mean that it automatically made the authority illegitimate. So that's... We don't want to misuse um, scripture, misuse texts um, to make statements that the texts are not saying. Um, I guess an answer, did, did Peter and John resist arrest, right? Did Peter and John go willingly? There's no evidence that they resisted arrest. They appeared to go willingly. Um, doesn't prove the point about the legitimacy or illegitimacy of the authority, um, but it just presents to us... Um, a text that we can go to to learn more about dealing with authority and especially when authority is put to use in ways that are contrary to the gospel of the kingdom. The point there is, are we careful in thinking through how to deal with authority? Next, do threats keep you from serving or preaching the gospel of Christ? Do threats keep you from serving And do threats keep you from preaching? What are you afraid to lose? The things you're afraid to lose would be the spots where you would be tempted to not obey God. Do you meditate upon and frequently praise God for Christ's death, Christ's resurrection, and Christ's current reign? In your life, in your personal life, in your family, in the church, in this world, do you rejoice for who Jesus Christ is regularly? In your personal life, your family life, for who He is in the church, and for for who He is over the cosmos? Do you rejoice and praise Him? 
These are themes we will never stop rejoicing over before God. We will never stop praising Him for His grace to us in Christ. We will never stop praising Him for Christ's great majesty and glory and wisdom and for His destruction of all of His enemies. We will never stop praising Him for the great peace that He is bringing in our hearts and our families and our church and in this world. And when it's all said and done, we're in glory and we look back and see what He has done, we will never stop praising Him for His death and His resurrection and His reign. Do you do that now, every day in your life, lifting up Christ, praising Him for who He is? Does this mark you? Does this define your life? What if you were threatened with imprisonment for preaching the gospel in public? Kind of gets ahead a little bit. But what if someone threatened you? What would you do if they said, you may not preach the gospel anymore. You may not speak in this man's name. You may not do it. What would you do? Why did these people believe the word? Why did they believe? Because they chose to believe, right? Everyone was there, had the choice to believe, right? They all had equal choice to believe. And some chose to believe and others chose not to believe. For those who were there who did not believe before Peter started his sermon, how how can we describe their spiritual state? One word. Dead. Could any of them have heard the message without the movement of the Holy Spirit of God in their hearts on that day? No. Why did they believe? Because God in His infinite kindness and grace chose to give faith to His elect on that day. These are souls He had in His mind since before time began. These are amongst the number of the elect that He thought of before He formed the world. And He brought them forth into eternal life in that day. And He's doing it right now all over this world. The snapping of the finger meant to represent God's work bringing souls to life one by one from His throne by His Spirit ever since then. That's why they believed. Don't believe that they believed. Don't believe that you believed because of faith that you generated from yourself. Have you prayed and asked God to forgive you? Have you ever done that? particularly for the children, but also for anyone in here. Have you ever been convicted of your own sins and you just prayed to God and you said, God, I'm guilty. Please forgive me. And Lord Jesus Christ, thank you for dying for my sins on the cross. And thanked Him for forgiving you. Has anyone here ever prayed that simple prayer Because that's what happens as God works. That's the kind of thing that would have taken place in the minds of these folks who came to faith that day. They would have repented, turned away from their sin. They would have seen what they did. They would have seen that they were God's enemies. And they would have repented of that sin, admitted it to God, and turned to Him. You know, one of the questions that's asked of elders... It's not like a rule, but there's a particular elder that always asks this question. 
when there's an elder candidate being examined by the presbytery, they're always, this one gentleman, this other elder, always asks this one question. When is the last time you sinned? Right, so the question I have for you today is similar to this. When is the last time you prayed and asked God to forgive you? And if it's been a while, I can tell you that is not a sign of a healthy soul. Because we sin all the time, brothers and sisters. We sin all the time. Next, have you public, publicly professed your faith in Christ? Speaking of your faith in Christ, how He brought you to Him. And I don't mean in any particular public setting, but just any public setting, any time in public outside of your home. Whether it be here, or maybe at work, or maybe community activities. Have you ever publicly professed your faith in Christ? Which would include sharing the gospel, how God brought me to Himself, what I came to believe, how He worked in me to make me a Christian. Have you ever shared that in a public setting with anyone? If not, have you asked Him to bless you with that privilege? It's similar to what I asked before, the opportunity to share the gospel. If you've done it before, have you asked him for more opportunities to speak of his goodness to you? Have you identified next? Have you identified yourself with God's church? Have you identified yourself with God's church? Next, do you see that the promise of God's Holy Spirit is to you and to your children? And that is, now listen carefully, both the blessings and the persecutions. So when we bring our families before God in faith, when we identify together in His church as His people, and we believe that the blessings also belong to our children because He says they belong to Him, don't forget that the persecutions and the difficulties will also be theirs. It's one thing to agree to bring the persecutions and the difficulties of being a Christian upon yourself. But are you prepared for the day when you will watch your children experience the persecutions and difficulties of being a Christian because you have led them there? Because you have taught them the faith? Because your church has taught them the faith? Because your church has helped shape them into the people that this world hates. What will you choose then? Let's don't forget that. that when we identify ourselves with God's church, we're coming for everything that God has for us. And that is, as we see in this text, the blessings and the difficulties. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious Heavenly Father, we rejoice to be your beloved children. And together again, Lord, with hearts filled with faith, we look to you and say yes and amen to your word, to who you are, to what you have done for us. We believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah foretold since the beginning of time by all the prophets of God in your word. We believe that Jesus Christ has come and died and shed his blood to 
His precious blood to deliver your people from our sins, to bring total conquest over the forces of darkness, to believe that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, was brought forth from the dead, and in the flesh he came forth from the grave in his glorified body, never to die again. Raised up to your right hand, O Father, where he now reigns over all. And we rejoice as we look to you, Father, in your promise that when we ask you to pour out your Spirit upon us, that you will do so. Bless us, O God, to believe your word more and more and to more and more fully walk in your ways and do your will. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Oh, how we love you, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.